Namo tassa bhagavato arhanto samasambo dasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arhanto samasambo dasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arhanto samasambo dasa. So, um, I want to congratulate you all, and um, we've been here 24 hours, first day. Hafiz, he says, um, was a wild man poet from Persia, he says, now that all your worry has proved to be such an unlucrative business, why don't you just find a better job? And so perhaps today um, we've begun this new job. But this job isn't so easy. Yet I do want to say, uh, sitting in this chair looking out to all of you, it's been a pretty remarkable, beautiful view as well. In the sense of the sincerity, the effort of working with practice, uh, we know that it's not easy from our own experience. And so it's just, um, it's a very beautiful view. It's uh, inspiring for us all to be here and to be present and to practice together. And in life, at times, it's fairly rare to... um, take this inward journey, and this has been going on, of course, for a long time. Rare that there's an inward journey, and actually this was a a quote from St. Augustine in the year 399. The year 399 is a long time ago. But he says, people travel to wonder at the height of the mountains and at the huge waves of the seas. People wonder at the long courses of the rivers and the vast compass of the ocean. People wonder at the circular motion of the stars, and then they walk right past themselves without ever wondering. Walking right past themselves without ever wondering. There's a lot to be wondered about. Who are we? Where are we? Why are we here? Where are we going? Biologist uh, Rod McClaver says, why do we exist? 50 trillion cells make up the human body and each of those cells in turn consists of atoms. Countless millions or billions of them, depending on the function of a specific cell. And the atoms, they consist mostly of empty space. Protons and neutrons surrounded by electrons. Empty space, just as the universe is mostly empty space. The human body, this entity of mostly empty space, is held together. Space unified even if only for a little while, by a life force. The atoms existed before the human body, 
and they'll be here after life is gone. But in the meantime, in this short interval, the atoms are held together by this indescribable and unknowable force, the empty space. It's a deep question to ask, who are we? It's a very important question, though. For we know that this life is filled with mystery. When Siddhartha Gautama, and I was mentioning this last night, when he realized at the age of 29 that he nor anyone else could escape growing old, having ill health, dying, being separated from those that we care about. When he realized these inescapabilities, this catapulted him into a sense of urgency to understand what is this life? It's hard to believe that just at the age of 29, he just awakened to these. But then again, I'm 57, and I'm not fully sure if I've awakened yet to these things. But in some sense, in my own personal journey of life, I have had some awakenings towards those things that, in a sense, catapulted myself into a place of what is this life? At the age of uh, four years old, riding in the back seat of my parents' car outside of Boston and driving down Corey Hill Road, in the back seat of my parents' car, I had this realization. Why I realized what I realized, I don't know why it came up there. I don't know if my parents were talking about death, but the realization was that, that I and everyone else could die at any moment, at any time. And so I mentioned my discovery to my mommy and daddy. And they said to me very kindly and lovingly, don't worry, Bobby. It's called Bobby in those days. It's not going to happen for a long, long, long time. Well, even at four, I knew that they were trying to be nice to me, but they weren't telling me the truth. Because what I knew was what I knew, that death could come at any moment to anyone. And then to further re-emphasize that, um, I believe I also mentioned briefly yesterday, I had a, a younger brother that uh, had an illness and died that I shared a room with. My best friend, who I played with every day that lived across the street from me, died, went into a diabetic coma one night and died. And my grandpa, who lived downstairs, who I was very close to, passed away. This all happened within like a, about a three-year period, sometime between ages of six and nine. And so my childhood had a lot of death in it, and it really catapulted me into what is this life? Growing up in an area, too, where uh, being a Jew in a non-Jewish neighborhood experienced a lot of prejudice. I remember coming home, I think in kindergarten, asking my parents what a kike meant. And 
Then we were growing into the 60s and the Beatles came around and the times were a changing. My high school went on strike and closed. Teachers left, never came back. I was in a place of a lot of confusion and a lot of despair. Well, I found out that a number of my friends were going on to college, but my ambition in life was to just finish, get out of high school. And when they all left to college, I realized, well, this may be something I should think about doing. And I got into, cross, I got into downhill skiing, and I thought, well, I want to go to a school in northern Vermont so I can ski. And so I actually had to go back to school one year after college because my grades are fairly poor to help um, like a prep school to get into college. And fortunately, I got into uh, Linden State College in Lindenville, Vermont, in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. And it was very close to Burke Mountain ski area. And so for the next couple of years, partying around, skiing, totally lost, totally confused, flunked out of school. And I was remitted back in warning and decided, well, maybe I should um, see what's on the course catalog and see if there's anything that really interested me. And uh, although I have great respect for reading and writing and arithmetic, which I had been drilled into me for the last uh, 14 years, I wasn't interested in that. And I was, I, was there something else? And I came across this course. It said Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen. I didn't know anything about that, but I knew it was the wisdom of the East. And my experience of the East was fairly limited, but it was a really good experience, the, what I did have, and that was eating uh, in Chinese restaurants growing up. <laughs> we kept kosher, but we could go to Chinese restaurants. And I'll never forget that the Chinese restaurants had a very different vibe than Howard Johnson's. And the artwork was very different. And even the waiters and the waitresses, there was a different type of a feel. And the artwork was different. There was something that was alluring, and it definitely came first from my gut. But there was also a feeling about those restaurants. So I'm going to take this class. So I went in there. My very first day, my professor, Bill Jackson, is sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position. Most of my teachers prior were wearing suit jackets and ties and sitting behind their desk. And this guy was sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position. This was in the early 70s in Vermont. And he began to talk. And I began to listen to him because somehow the way that he talked, the way that he held himself, the feeling that he had was unlike any other human being I had ever experienced in my entire life. And I realized that this guy knew something that I didn't know. And I wanted to know what he knew because he wasn't talking about something academically. He, he was, like you can just get a sense when someone's like living their life, living their dharma, living their truth, living, being who they are, like he was embodying something that was really amazing to me because I'd never met anyone like this. He assigned for us the Tao Te Ching Bei Lao Tzu and reading the Tao Te Ching was like coming home. Like I couldn't believe these, these teachings from Lao Tzu, the way of life, Taoism. And 
I never knew that anyone thought about life in this way, and it so much resonated with my own inner experience that I didn't have words for. Eventually I came, and I'll just read you the quote. This was the Witter Binner translation that I just so fond of. I came to epigram number 47, and it says that there's no need to run outside the better seeing, nor to peer from a window. Rather abide at the center of your being, for the more you leave it, the less you'll learn. Search your heart and see, and if he who is wise, who takes each turn, the way to do is to be. No need to look outside your window for everything that you need to know is inside you. And as if awakening from a place of being so lost, I realized all those years how lost I had been. And I certainly didn't know the answer. But what I did know is that if I wanted to know anything, I needed to begin to look inside here, in my own heart, in my own direct experience. And that's when I really began the practice of meditation. This practice of turning inwards. And this is not unique to the Tao or to Buddhism, but to many of the different spiritual traditions. Really fond of this uh, quote from St. Isaac. It was from the ninth century. He's a Christian mystic that lived in Iraq. And he says, be at peace with your own soul, and then heaven and earth will be at peace with you. Enter eagerly into the treasure house that is within you, and you will see the things that are in heaven. For this one single entry, the ladder that leads to the kingdom, is hidden within you. So dive into yourself, and there you will discover the stairs by which to ascend by diving into yourself. There you will discover the stairs by which to ascend. It's a perennial spiritual wisdom, the understanding of ourselves begins with going into ourselves. And every one of you here is making this choice. And, and for many of you, you've, made this, you've been practicing this for quite some time. I know there's a wide range of experience here, but you have taken the choice to come here, this retreat, and to dive into your own direct experience. And there may be things that are fueling that, of course. Our lives, our stress, our pain. Trying to understand what is the meaning of life and so forth. There's a powerful reading by Jane Kenyon, it's called Otherwise. She writes, I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, and a ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood, and all morning I did the work that I love, and at noon I lied down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. 
We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls, and I planned another day just like this day. But one day, I know it will be otherwise. One day, I know it will be otherwise. This is what awakened within Siddhartha Gautama at the age of 29, this understanding that one day it will be otherwise. And this is what set him on a very powerful journey of discovery. We'll speak about that discovery as the retreat unfolds. After an arduous journey, seven years, the Buddha awakened underneath what became known as the Bodhi tree, the tree of awakening. And the Buddha means the awakened one. I love that, the awakened one, the awakened one, mindfulness, awareness. Awakened to the truth of suffering, of dissatisfactoriness in its causes and the path leading to its end. Very practical, the teachings of the Dharma. We spoke last night a little bit about the foundation of virtue that builds the foundation of concentration, that builds the foundation for wisdom. Sila Samadhi Panya, virtue, concentration, wisdom, and the eightfold steps, the path that the Buddha teaches us about the pathway to awakening, to the cessation of suffering by understanding its origination, comes through these great steps of wise view and intentions that help support us to live in such a way of cultivating our virtues with our speech, our actions, our livelihood, our efforts. And this, in turn, supports our mindfulness, our concentration to grow. These are the seeds that develop our wisdom. So I know that on our first day of practice, and for the next few days, sometimes we call it, this is the time of being in the swamp. We're tired, we've been busy, and aching bones, wandering mind, lots going on. We may even wonder and even question our own practice thinking, I wonder if I really am made of the right meditative stuff. Mind's all busy and crazy, restless. So I have a nice reading for all of you, dedicated to all of you that that want to be made of the right meditative stuff. If you can start the day without caffeine or pep pills, if you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, If you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, you are made of the right meditative stuff. If you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, if you can overlook when people take things out on you when through no fault of yours something goes wrong, you must be made of the right meditative stuff. If you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can face the world without lies and deceit, if you can conquer tension without medical help, you must be made of the right meditative stuff. If you can relax without liquor, and if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, if you can do all of these things, then you must be the family dog. So, so much 
of being made of the right meditative stuff. It's a cooker. We know. Kabir writes, no, Hafiz writes, for three days, that not many teachers in this world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone for three days in your closet. Yes, that would do. That means not leaving. You better get a friend to help you with a few sandwiches in a chamber pot. No reading in there either or writing poems. That would be cheating. Let's aim for the high 360-degree detox. Remember, this sitting alone is not recommended if you're normally sedated or have been under a doctor's surveillance because of your brain, dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. A ruby is buried here. There is a ruby buried here. Sitting with ourselves, of course, is not easy. And uh, there was a time in my life where I lived in a Buddhist monastery for eight and a half years. And me and some Dharma friends, we used to say, you know, just like, you know, you come to IMS, it's pastoral place, it's beautiful, little rain and farmlands and woods, maybe deer frolicking in the forest, but inside, and the same thing we would talk about when we lived in the monastery, it's a shit accelerator. Things are coming up, you know, it's like we're sitting here and it's all like, looks like not much is happening, but inside, there could be a lot happening. I trust things are already happening. cooking. So the Buddhists, we have a list of these things that can happen and how to work with them. So practical. We call these the hindrances. And there's, of course, many tributaries of them. But essentially, talk about five in particular. And I trust that perhaps today you've already been visited by them. Desiring, aversion, sleep, sleepiness, sloth and torpor, Restlessness and doubt. And also, of course, wandering mind, which isn't necessarily part of the list, but has anybody been having wandering mind? <laughs> Anyone not? Raise your hand. <laughs> Bhante Gunaratana, he really says how it is. I love his language. This comes from uh, mindfulness in plain English. He says, somewhere in this process of meditation, you'll come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy that your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. Sound familiar? <laughs> no problem, he says. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's always been this way. Perhaps you just never noticed. So we know this mind is busy, and today we've had the direct experience of... Um, the wandering mind. One of the very first insights that we get when we begin mindfulness practice, in my opinion, is the insight of how much that our minds wander. And because we are mindful, that's the only reason how we can recognize that it's wandering. It kind of is like a double mirror we get the chance to see where it is that, we're, that where it went off to that we most of the time don't normally see because most of the time we're usually lost in it, if you follow my logic here. 
It's like a double mirror. We only, because we're mindful, get a chance to see where it is that our mind has gone off to. A friend of mine, a psychologist, remarked to me after beginning her mindfulness practice that it seemed like her mind worked in two modes of operation. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, yeah, it's, it's either rehearsing or it's rehashing. I love the simplified version of that. How much energy have we spent today on rehearsing and rehashing? If we could bottle that as an energy source, whew, we would not have a problem. But to become aware that we're rehearsing or rehashing is important. The moment we realize that we're not present, we are. And the practice begins again and again and again. I think it's one way of holding the practice that I think can be very helpful for all of us is that we train with kindness. Payment Children speaks about, you know, there's a couple of different ways you could train a dog. You could train it with a lot of fear and it'll obey, it'll lie down and sit up, but it'll be often be neurotic and confused. But in contrast, when we train with kindness, the dog will be flexible and confident and it'll still roll over and sit up. And I really want to encourage, and you know, Richard has also mentioned this a number of times about doing the best that you can, and this spirit of compassionate practice. We can be very hard on ourselves. And so I really want to appeal to us to hold our practice, if it's possible, and it's a training in a kind way, it might be at first unfamiliar. But the thing is, the moment that you realize that you're not present and you recognize you've been off with a whole epic trilogy, that moment that you are aware of it, that's mindfulness. That's a beautiful moment, I'm back again. Rather than punishing ourselves for where we've been, and there's nothing really we can do about it anyways, because that's already gone. The operative is, I'm back again. So can we begin in that moment, recognizing the mind wandering, to acknowledge where it went? And then, with kindness, coming back into this moment. Can we begin to train with ourselves in holding our practice in that way? Then this practice becomes one that is supported with kindness and compassion. I've also begun to, uh, to recognize that there's three benefits to working with the wandering mind. The first is that it simply is mind training. You know, you go to the gym and you do repetition of weights and gradually in time you build muscle mass. Even Arnold Schwarzenegger, the former governor and uh, actor said, this was quoted out of a newspaper, that three mindful reps are better than five unmindful ones. From Arnold. <laughs> the same way, every time the mind goes off and we recognize that it's gone off and we come back again to the breath and wherever you're feeling it in the body, goes off, we come back. It goes off, it come back. It goes off, we come back. In time, this repetition begins to build the muscle mass of our concentration, steadying the mind with awareness. There's a beautiful quote by a Christian mystic in the Middle Ages, St. Francis de Sales. It really speaks to a way of holding this practice. Again, I'll support it with kindness. He says, if your mind wanders off, bring it back quite gently. 
And if you did nothing for the whole of your, of your hour but bring it back every time it went off, which was every other moment, your hour would still be well employed. Isn't that very beautiful? Your hour would still be well employed. That's training with kindness. Even if it's gone off every other moment and every other moment we bring it back, your hour would be well employed. Can we begin to train with kindness? So the first benefit of this mind training, working with the wandering mind, is, is when it goes off, we bring it back. So this is one benefit. We're training the mind. Second, I think, really important part of uh, working with the wandering mind is that if you notice that your mind is continually going back to some conversation you have with someone and you're realizing like how angry you are or upset or confused or some type of emotional thing is going on, it's like you're... you're subconscious is meeting your conscious level if your life and like maybe there's something you need to deal with and when you're done the meditation I might have to go work with balancing the ledger I didn't realize how much this was affecting me and it's only by going inside ourselves we're beginning to get in touch with what's really going on if you will under the hood and like wow I realize I'm a seething cauldron of anger or I'm sad or I'm scared or I'm angry so this is also important information if the wandering mind is continually going to some type of wounded place or an unresolved place this is important information that's revealing to you that maybe perhaps we need to tend to some business here so that that's important the third part benefit that I also see in working with the wandering mind is that it begins to reveal to us, particularly, uh, you know, many of you are aware I, I teach mindfulness based stress reduction and you know, one of the important aspects in mindfulness based stress reduction is beginning to understand the mind-body connection, that the very thoughts we think, that the emotions we feel have a physiological reflection in the body. And when we work with our wandering mind, and let's say we're off with some anger, sadness, or whatever, and all of a sudden I come back in to the present moment and I realize my jaws clenched, my belly's in knots and I'm, I'm hot and tight. Like I begin to make these connections between my thoughts and emotions and how it's actually affecting my body. So there's lots that we can work with the wandering mind. The practice of bringing it back, building our concentration, realizing where it is that we've gone off to. Maybe we need to deal with these, these things later. And also this connection of the mind and the body, how our thoughts and emotions affect our physiology. When I teach mindfulness-based stress reduction, when we meet for the second class, this is after a week of people beginning to practice meditation at home, two things emerge as far as people's descriptions of their practice. And the one is my mind is wandering all over the place. And then almost right next to it is I'm falling asleep all the time. Anybody get sleepy today? Yeah. You know, true confessions. Um, 6.30 this morning for breakfast here was 3.30 my time, two days, 3.30 a.m. two days ago. In California, three hours difference. So I'm definitely feeling some sleepiness or... Sometimes the old classical language is sloth and torpor. I heard Wes Nisker once, a spirit rock meditation teacher, say, yeah, that's the name of a law firm, sloth and torpor. <laughs> He's got a good sense of humor. Sleep is something that comes up often in retreat. You're on a seven-day retreat. We might, we might finally wake up around day four. Oh, I've been here finally getting rested. Sleep is something that uh, for many of us, uh, we aren't 
are not able to rest enough. We live busy lives, many of us have to pick up the kids, have to go do this, have to go do that. Um, when we finally begin to stop and to become present, perhaps the body begins to really reveal itself to us of just how exhausted and tired we are. And so it's not surprising if some of us here have been really feeling tired, and this may happen to, this may go on for the next couple days. And so honoring ourselves, and fortunately in retreat, it's not like after the, you know, the Dharma talks, like it's Saturday, this is the big Saturday night event, the Dharma talk. You know, it's not like we're going to be going out to a big party afterwards. And so maybe it is a time where we can begin to tend to ourselves and maybe go to sleep a little bit earlier and begin to take care of ourselves. There's times, of course, that we fall asleep because we don't want to look at what's going on inside us. And I think that's always a valuable question for us to ask ourselves. All too often, I think, in our times, though, it has to do with our fatigue that is deep and that, you know, many years ago there was no lighting, of course, and we'd be going to sleep when the sun went down and waking up when the sun came up. And we were very much in touch and in rhythm with the biorhythms or the circadian rhythms. But the advent of our 24-7, 365 super production life, at times we are burning the candle in both ends. I hope it doesn't happen here, but I remember on my very first Vipassana retreat, it was uh, packed with people in a small room. We were really cuddled together, and it was after lunch, it was maybe about the third or fourth day in, it was a 10-day retreat, and um, I fell asleep sitting up. The next thing I knew, I was on the floor, and I knocked down and flattened a woman next to me. Then a friend of ours, Richard and I were talking, we won't mention his name, and he was in the Zen tradition. He was sitting, he was, his job was to ring the gong, and he fell asleep, and boom! <laughs> These things happen. There's a few times today, like, kind of, whoa. We're tired. Suggestions. Change your, pos- change your posture. I saw actually a few people today uh, beginning to stand up. We really want to invite you to stand up if you're feeling really tired. It's very rare that we can fall asleep standing up. It's probably not impossible, but um, standing up can be very, very helpful. And feel free right in the middle of a meditation. If you're really feeling like you're struggling with it, feel free to, to stand up. Open your eyes. Maybe go outside during the walking time or wash your face with cold water. Perhaps it is an indication after lunch, I just had a little bit more than what I needed, and so maybe watching our food intake. Sometimes using imagination, I'm sitting at the edge of a 5,000-foot cliff, or there's tigers that run on this trail any time, and I'm sitting by the edge of the trail, I better be awake. But then sometimes, you know, there's actually a beautiful story of uh, these two younger monks, and this very rigid monk found this other monk sleeping and was really angry and ran and told the teacher. And the teacher said to him, go get that monk a blanket. Yeah. 
Let it be with compassion. If you're really tired, sleep and be happy. Maybe suggest not to do your whole sleeping bit in here, but go to your room and sleep and be happy and wake up and do the practice. You know, sometimes you look at that meditation cushion, it's like, you know, I want to sit on there and get enlightened, but there's a deeper voice inside that's saying, you know, I wish I could put my head on that pillow. And sometimes we do need to listen to that voice. Can we train with kindness? Middle path. So another visitor that arises at times is desire. I was joking with Richard, we, we've been developing this, um, yesterday and today we take this big long walk around um, IMS. And there's this road on the other side, this parallel here, and there's the house for sale. And so during the meditation today I was fantasizing, like, I want to buy that house. And then I have all these, I've got to move my family from Santa Cruz to here. I could be close to IMS. I mean, it's like creating this whole story. And it's, it's like this, the, scent, the desire just it took over me. It took over while we were walking by. I was talking to Richard. How do you think we can do it? <laughs> so you'll notice there'll be times in the hall you're wanting something. And it comes like a fire. It's consuming. And I really want to invite us to take a look at the quality of our mind when we are consumed by that. Are we in a peaceful place or is there a sense of agitation physically, mentally, and emotionally? So we can begin to learn. I love that this practice begins to address how we work with these challenges that arise within us. We can begin to work with them. What's the texture? What's my mind, my body, and my emotional state feeling like when I'm in a place of wanting? Remember one time eating this tofuti ice cream. It was so good. I was, in, I was in satiation. I was at one with the tofuti. But then all of a sudden I noticed there was one teaspoon left and then I was just swept with fear and sadness. What am I going to do? I'll just get another bowl. Not. And But just noticing how that when that wanting mind comes on, it has a quality of consuming. It's like on fire. I don't want to paint it a negative, but I want us to examine closely what does it feel like. Because when we bring our awareness to it, actually from my teacher, Tom Lucero, even if you're in a place of wanting, and if you know that you're wanting, you are gaining knowledge. If you don't know that you're wanting, then we're seeding our unawareness, our ignorance. But notice the texture of when the wanting comes and visits. What does it feel like? Begin to bring awareness there. Begin to acknowledge it. Also, of course, the, the, it's useful to realize in the practice the theme of impermanence, that whatever is arising is passing. So even this wanting mind is something that is transient, ephemeral. Right next to wanting is its opposite side of the coin, its friend, of not wanting. Kabir says, friend, please tell me what I can do about this world that I hold on to and it keeps spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and now I wear a robe. But then one day I noticed the cloth was well woven, so I bought some burlap. But now I throw it elegantly over my shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. 
I've worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. It goes on. Aversive mind, angry mind, not wanting mind. Perhaps it's come up looking at the lunch or the dinner. I don't want this. Maybe the person breathing a couple rows down from you, them being too loud of a breather. The person's maybe not doing a fast enough job washing the dishes, waiting too long in the line, like noticing aversive qualities, not wanting it to be the way that it is. So easy to cast that blame out, not want. And in our practice, definitely not wanting. Anybody have not wanting? <laughs> Anybody not have not wanting? Okay. So really want to take this on as a practice too, to recognize when we're in places of aversion. What does that feel like physically, mentally, emotionally? When we speak about mindfulness, we're examining very closely these three worlds. We live within our bodies, our thoughts, and emotions. And what does aversive mind feel like in the body? So we take this on as a practice. Another one is restlessness. And restlessness has this kind of this quality of bringing together other hindrances. Sometimes I like to call it an MHA, a multiple hindrance attack. Restlessness has aversion in it, has wanting in it. It's like, we can, it's like a pacing tiger. We can't barely be inside our own skin. It's an uncomfortable feeling. It may be accompanied with doubt and tiredness, wandering mind, a whole host of characters. Restlessness, my toes hurting, I'm feeling gassy, I'm sneezing, I have snot coming out. What do I do? Restlessness. And by the way, I'm sorry, with my sneezing and snottiness, I have a lot of allergies. And I just dealt with all of them in California, and now I'm rehitting spring again here. And so there's restlessness, there's aversion. So we work with our practice in learning how to ride the waves. These mind and body states, they come and they go. And when we think about restlessness, restlessness is really unharnessed energy. And if we could actually harness this energy, because restlessness has a lot of like that pacing tiger. It can barely sit in our skin. And so we want to work with trying to harness, utilize this energy in, in such a way that it can be beneficial for our practice. That energy gets harnessed. It will deepen our mindfulness, our concentration. What helps it is to have Compassion, being able to hold ourselves with compassion, love, and kindness. It also might be very helpful to help harness that energy. Maybe we need to go on a brisk walk after the sitting to begin to um, work with those energies of restlessness. Another one is doubt. You might be wondering most of the day here, what the heck am I doing here? Will this really do anything? At times we feel that sense of desperation. Will this really help? Practicing with the Dharma, with these practices, by learning to turn into our aversion, our desires, our restlessness, our sleepiness, and beginning to get deeper understanding into what's fueling these conditions to arise begins to settle our doubting mind, we begin to grow with more confidence, more sense of uh, an understanding as we turn and acknowledge these uncomfortable states, they begin to dissipate. 
that actually perhaps it's been my resistance to how things are is what's even furthering my suffering and my pain. So we can begin to work with the sense of doubt by our, our direct experience of practice. We we'll begin to learn to turn into our own skid, if you will. And now that I'm in New England, everyone here understands this. And of course, um, when we get into a skid in snow, even though it feels counterintuitive, we know that by turning into the skid, the car is going to straighten out. And I remember this happening to me when I was 16 years old, living in Boston, and it was a revelation because I didn't want to turn into a skid prior to that. It was scary. I wanted to get away from the skid, so I turned away from it. But lo and behold, as I turned my car into the skid, it was like a revelation. And in some ways, the principles of being turning into our aversion, our desire, turning in meaning by allowing ourselves to acknowledge what's present. And we may discover as we bring our energy into acknowledging what's there rather than our energy into fighting and resisting what's there, things change. So there's a simile of these hindrances with water, and so I'd like to just uh, read you those, that desire is like colored water that's been dyed a certain color and it obstructs the clear water beneath. Aversion is like boiling hot springs. Sleepiness is like a layer of thick algae. Restlessness is like choppy waters, rough seas. And doubt is muddied waters being stirred from the bottom. The water is not clear. The antidote as well when working with these hindrances is to sit still. Love this reading from Achan Shah, Jack Cornfield, and many people's teachers, teacher, says, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course, and then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come and drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. This is going to be a pretty funny metaphor, but I thought about this, and I think there's some, um, it's pertinent. So we know at Christmas time, there's those little snow cone things like Frosty the Snowman in the cone, and you shake them all up, right? Frosty's a meditator, sits really still. Gradually, everything comes down. In the same way, we're learning to become still. What's being shaken up is our wanting, our not wanting, our confusions, our despairs. As we begin to sit still, things become clear. To me, in some ways, this practice comes down to two things. I actually got this from Guy Armstrong, the teacher here. Actually said three things. Relax, observe, and allow. In some way that really, for me, captures some of the essence in the heart of the practice. Observing and allowing. All things will begin to run their course. Dana Falls, a poet, she says, there's no controlling life. 
Try corralling a lightning bolt or try to contain a tornado. <clears throat> Dam a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist in the tide, it'll sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in, the wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and success. And when loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. And in the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. Resist in the tide, it will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. I think we're coming towards the end of this talk. So I just want to say and encourage that no doubt we're working with steadying the mind with our breath, but you and I, and we all know that other things are arising. As we become aware of our stories, our pains, we bring our awareness to them and also our ability to acknowledge what it is that we are aware of. That's what completes the circuit, if you will, of our understanding. So it's not like necessarily in the practice Pandora's box while we open it up with awareness. Now it's like every man or gal for ourselves. We become aware of what's going on as we sit still and we begin to acknowledge what is within us. And in this way, we will gain wisdom. We will begin to understand in time what is fueling and driving our fears, our pains, our sadness, our greed, our hatred, and our ignorance. And we come to realize that any moment is a moment to be held, to be present with. I love this um, reading from Ed Brown, who's a Zen priest and a cook and an author. I invite you to feel the spaciousness of his words here. He says, now I take the time to peel potatoes and wash lettuce, boil beets, scrub the floors, clean the sinks, and empty the trash. And I'm absorbed in the everyday. And I find time to unbind, unwind, and to invite the whole body, mind, breath, thought, and the wild impulse to join and to bask in the task. There's no time lost thinking somewhere else is better. There's no time lost imagining getting more elsewhere. There's no way to tell that this moment does not measure up. So if we could bring these words into our practice, no time lost thinking somewhere else is better. No time lost imagining getting more elsewhere. No way to tell that this moment does not measure up. So much space entering into this moment. So he ends by saying, hand me the spatula, for now is the time to taste what is. So as we come to an end, a reading from Dr. Seuss, 
and the places you'll go. And he says, I'm afraid that sometimes you'll play lonely games too. Games you can't win because you'll play against you. All alone, whether you like it or not, alone you'll be something quite a lot. And when you're alone, there's a very good chance you'll meet some things that will scare you right out of your pants. There are some down by the road between hither and yon that can scare you so much you won't want to go on. But on you will go, though the weather be foul. On you will go, though the hacking cracks howl. Onward up many a frightening creek, through your arms, though your arms may get sore and your sneakers may leak. On and on you'll hike, and I know you'll hike far and face up to the problems, whatever they are. You'll get mixed up, of course, as you already know. You'll get mixed up with many strange birds as you go. So be sure where you step, and step with great care and tact. And remember that life's a great balancing act. And just never forget to be dexterous and deft, and never mix up your right foot with your left. So let's just sit for a moment. And so I'll just end with a three-line poem from Antonio Machado, a Spanish poet. He says, some say it's good to dream, and others say it's better to live. But best of all, my friend, is to awaken. Best of all, my friend, is to awaken. So thank you very much. And um, time for a walking period. And we'll ring the bell in a bit for another sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.